Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. History will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of children. Is a quote from Nelson Mandela, revolutionary, political leader and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, the former president of South Africa. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, leading with a mandate to advocate for the protection of children's rights, to help meet their basic needs, and to expand their opportunities to reach their full potential. Our guest is Tony Stewart, Chief Executive Officer of UNICEF Australia. Tony also currently serves as Chair of the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission Advisory Board, and is a member of the Prime Minister's Community Business Partnership. Previously, Tony was the CEO of National Roads and Motorists Association, better known as the NRMA, and of Sydney Airports Corporation. He also recently chaired the Not-for-Profit Advisory Board to the National COVID-19 Commission, was a founding director of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, and a former director of the Heart Research Institute of Australia and the Starlight Children's Foundation National Board. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform. And for our listeners in New Zealand, the United States and Switzerland, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. While Australia remains one of the richest countries in the world, some 3 million people, including more than 731,000 children, are living in poverty. In today's eye-opening discussion, Tony shares with us the sobering reality children, especially from the most disadvantaged and marginalised sectors in Australia and around the world face. The threats to their safety as they grow up in a society rife with conflict and disasters and sheds a light on UNICEF's efforts to keep them safe, provide education, nutrition and healthcare, as well as to support their long-term development. Before we start the episode, I would like to make an appeal for you to visit the UNICEF Australia's website, unicef.org.au, to find out more about what they do and to support this most worthwhile of causes. So sit back and enjoy a future for all. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Lovely to be here. Tony, if you could change one thing in the world for children, what would it be? It would be to invest further in education. Education is the pathway for all of children to prosper, both mentally, physically, and financially. From your position, what is the plight of children in today's world? 
Well, the plight is a tale of two cities. You know, one city, the rich countries of the world, where things are pretty well, and you know Australia would fall into that camp. But then there's another city, which is a city of gross inequity. Unfortunately, the world is, here we are, 2021, and we're seeing more outbreaks of conflict than ever before. Yes. Children are growing up in conflict. Once upon a time, you know, there would be no such thing as bombing a school or children caught up in conflict. You know, right back in the most centuries of wars, children were out of bounds. Yeah. Unfortunately, children get caught up in conflict in today's world. But what we're now seeing is a world where children will struggle. They will walk through landmines. They will walk through bombings to attend school. They will do whatever it takes to attend school. There were girls who were dressed up in boys not so long ago in certain countries to, to make sure they could go to school. Children treasure education. It's priceless. And the more we, that we can educate. And in the case of UNICEF, mm-hmm. often you'll find that when there's a war zone happening, yep. there'll be a, a school run by UNICEF. In fact, I was in South Sudan in a protection of civilian camp two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Very dangerous place to be. Yeah. Kids are doing class morning, afternoon, and evening. So there's three lots of classes in the day. And I went to one of the classes. There's a group of 13-year-old children. Asked them what they're doing. They showed me the maths. I took a photo of it and sent it to my daughter, who's at a school here in Sydney. And she said, Dad, that's last year's algebra. They were only one year behind the 14-year-old algebra class. And I'm sitting, they're sitting out in a desert doing it. And I went, wow, these kids, they don't care whether they're in Sydney or Somalia. They want the access to education. What drew you to you become the CEO of UNICEF for Australia? Well, I was wondering for a while there when I was the group CEO of the CEO, really, what was our purpose? As an organization, we had a very strong sense of purpose in the early days, very much about safer roads, safer cars, safer drivers. This was in your previous role? No, at UNICEF. Um, okay. And at the airport, I was a very strong sense of purpose when running an airport. It's to make sure, quite frankly, that everyone can arrive safely, securely, leave safely, securely, and transfer safely, securely on your watch. Lose sight of that purpose and you're in real trouble. But I have always felt that one has to have a purpose in what one does. And I felt that whatever my next role would be, mm-hmm. it would be something which could really leave a good footprint behind. The boards were one option. Yeah. But it's sometimes there's a lot of organizations and it's changed in the last five years. Yeah. They know what their profits are, but boy, if you ask to articulate them over dinner, what's their purpose? And you know, where do they make a a difference, you know, on this planet or to society or they've struggled with that. And maybe that's because corporations law in the past has trained so many of us just to be thinking about, you know, what's in the best interests of the the company code for shareholders yes. rather than the broader stakeholders. And ESG is going to change all that. Are you seeing that happening? Yes, I am seeing that happening. But coming back to your question about UNICEF, yeah. um, gee, turning back the clocks, I had an LP. I was boarded at UNICEF at university when I was over in Christchurch in those days in the 1970s, and it was the concert for UNICEF. And I thought, God, these people do great work. And when a headhunter came knocking on my door and – said, would you be interested in working with UNICEF? I went up into the attic and I thought, how amazing, this bloody LP is following me 30 years later. (laughs) And uh, it's funny how life is. And I thought, wow, I get a chance to 
Be involved in something which I've missed in the last few years. When I was with Shell and British Airways, you you get to see what's happening in every country in the world when you work for a multinational. Anyone here listening to this from a multinational, one of the intangible benefits is a sense of global perspective. I realise that UNICEF is really the Red Cross for children. Um, having a chance to understand what's happening in different countries, be part of an international network, um, I think is challenging and really exciting. Uh, sometimes we can get a little bit caught up in the world of Australia mm-hmm. or the world of New South Wales, mm-hmm. but to be back on the global stage to represent an organisation which is not funded by the UN. A lot of people don't know UNICEF particularly well, and they know of the brand, but was often think, now, what does it do? UNICEF was established after World War II to help displace children around the world. Okay. So most people in Europe are very familiar with UNICEF's work. It's completely funded by donations, by governments um, in the private sector. Private sector fund about a third, and that makes it quite a unique UN agency. We have the protection on the ground from the UN, but we're not a UN department. We're a separate organization with its own board. We exist to be bipartisan, non-religious. We're there just to improve the lives of children in that country. Working with governments and where governments can't improve those lives because of situations, we will provide whatever it takes. Vaccines, food, water, schools, to varying degrees. That's probably one of the reasons that UNICEF's found itself at the, um, I guess, the cornerstone of COVID-19. What's been your role through COVID-19? I think some of your listeners today would probably be surprised to know that AstraZeneca and Pfizer's largest customer is UNICEF. Prior to the pandemic, one of the most important things we could do to protect children was to ensure they were vaccinated. I'm sure there'll be a few people listening to this podcast who remember polio. Yes. Well, UNICEF's been one of the lead partners in eradicating polio. But as such, we've had the responsibility to vaccinate roughly half the world's children each year. Because if we didn't do it, it wouldn't happen. To ensure that those vaccines, whether they be polio, smallpox, typhoid, those critical disease. And as part of that, we've built up the capability and infrastructure to be able to deliver vaccines. Now, I always knew as part of this role that our mandate would be to ensure every child got a vaccine. But I never thought that we'd find ourselves in a situation that our role has now changed to ensure every person in the world gets a vaccine. And we've been asked to vaccinate the populations of the world where the governments need help. So we're the lead agency responsible for the delivery of the vaccinations in 100 countries in the world right now. 100 countries, is it? Yes, and that's as close as the Pacific, but it's most of Africa, most of Asia, working with the governments of those countries, but we are providing the resources, the skills. A vaccine doesn't vaccinate itself. A vaccination requires a needle. In fact, that's one of, there's an issue we're dealing with right now is the rich countries are stockpiling needles. We can't, you know, we've seen this just recently with vaccines. We, there's no point us talking about booster shots in Australia. Yep. Which booster shot are we getting? Well, that's, let's have that conversation at dinner this week when we're not thinking about how we can boost the world's vaccines. Uh, the only way that we can safely travel around the world and safely live in Australia over the next decade is yeah. if we vaccinate the world. And how much more do we have to do there? We've got a lot to do. So how bad is it? Well, we need at least 2 billion vaccines. We've managed to do 455 million so far. But all countries need to be saying how they can help. And really all employers should be saying, 
how can we, if you want to make a tangible ESG difference in the short term, how can we help vaccinate outside of Australia? It's going to help us in three ways. We can trade more efficiently. Our staff and colleagues are going to be safer. Yeah. But if we don't vaccinate countries, there will be a new variant. Variants take place in countries where there's high unvaccinated populations. We can't afford for daughter of Delta. We can't afford for strains to come back into Australia and undo all the good work of the last 18 months. So really, I know climate change is a pressing problem for the world, but the urgent problem is vaccinating the world from COVID. So you're a long way short, so how are you going to fill the gap? Well, we're going to encourage every government to dip in and realise that it's in the public and taxpayers' interest to make further contributions. Mm-hmm. We certainly hope that the Morrison government, who were very generous in supporting UNICEF with vaccines in the Pacific and Indo-Pacific, will not see that as a one-off, but continue. But also that major employers around the world actually are asking the question. And I have to say, in Australia, there's been some great leadership. Ross McEwen at NAB. Yeah. You may have seen turned NAB into JAB for a month. Yes. And has said for every staff who show a vaccination certificate, they will give five vaccines to somewhere else in the world. Okay. Very simple things. All it needs is organizations. We've had a lot of organizations, but we've got kids out there selling lemonade to make sure they can vaccinate another kid in another country. That's part of, I think, the psyche of Australia. And I think in times of a pandemic like this, you either watch it happen, you wonder what happened, or you say, I'm going to make it happen to make a little difference. So really what it comes down to is which boards out there are just saying, gosh, what happened during the pandemic? Let's get our team back to work and just move on. Well, it's not like that. Does the Australian boards or most boards know what UNICEF does in this, this capacity? Well, I'm not sure whether they do or they don't. I think most boards would know that a safer world yeah, I agree with that. is in their shareholders' interest. Yeah. We're all going to be a lot more sustainable. Um, there are different ways to help, but really there's only one agency who's in this base at the moment. Our job is to work with COVAX, which is the consortium set up between um, Gavi, CEFI, and World Health. Yeah. They provide all the policy. We provide the practicality. So the scale of UNICEF, so you said you're in 100 countries. We're in 194 countries. To my knowledge, only four brands are Apple, Samsung, Coca-Cola, and UNICEF. We are really probably of those brands. I would argue that we've probably got the strongest purpose, which is to ensure that the world is a better place for children. And in each of those countries, work with the governments of whatever persuasion to encourage better outcomes for children. Wherever you are in the world, everyone has been a child and many, many people are parents. And really what's the one thing that we can all do is try to improve the position for children in those countries. For some, it's nutrition. For some, it's education. For the more modern countries, advanced countries now, it's new issues. It's the mental health. It's the anxiety of climate change. I had a headmaster from a school contact me and said, Tony, most of your colleagues, when you were at school, you were anxious about the Cold War, the nuclear war. That anxiety isn't there now, but that anxiety is climate change. Today's young are as anxious as we were about the Cold War, about climate change, and we need to recognise that. You know, you can't say it's a fad which is going away. Well, we had a um, a chat, and you sort of really put me back in my seat when you said to me that morning that you guys were engaged with members of the Taliban, shall we say, as the Americans and us were pulling out on the spot to ensure the security and safety of 
the youngsters. That to me just is incredibly impressive. Is that the type of engagement you have around the world and the relationships that you have? Look, the team at UNICEF around the world are an incredibly talented team. And if you've often wondered what happened to a lot of those Australians who drove trucks through Africa or did unusual things, didn't turn up in the boardroom, and there's probably some of your sons and daughters out there and wanted to do good, the odds are that they're probably with UNICEF in Afghanistan or Somalia right now. It's amazing how often when I visit different places, somebody will say, G'day, are you from Australia? In the case of Afghanistan, UNICEF worked with the Taliban last time they were in power. Okay. And I think they respected that UNICEF is not there to talk about how to run a country, yep. but how to get the best of Afghani children. More recently, my colleagues in Kabul have been in negotiations with the Taliban to encourage them to allow girls back to school, yeah, both okay. at secondary and primary and secondary level. And piece by piece, there is improvement happening in that area. The Taliban have allowed UNICEF to recommence polio vaccinations door by door. And obviously alongside that, we'll be talking about COVID. But you know, we're not there to comment on a regime. No. I still come back to the fundamental premise that most leaders, whether they're political leaders, business leaders, they're still family people. They understand the importance of that. what is the priceless asset, whether they are in the world of children. And our job is to help work with them making a difference. Now, in a lot of cases, we have to do it ourselves, whether that's supplying malnutrition food, whether that's supplying safe water, even close by here, whether that's supplying for so many girls in the world menstrual hygiene kits, one of the largest things. We have a global warehouse in Copenhagen where when I visited last time, we were sending menstrual hygiene supplies to North Korea and emergency food to Somalia. Governments, I think, respect that doesn't matter where you are in the world, um, there are going to be areas which need help. And that's why we are in China. That's why we're in Australia. Countries like Australia is very different. We're very privileged here. But we still need to represent children on issues which mean a lot to them. UNICEF represents young people on the National Youth Mental Health Task Force. I know it's wonderful that we've got so many academics involved, but we also needed somebody who can speak up for, for the young. In bushfires and drought, we speak up for children. Worried me that the Australian governments and most state governments have emergency plans coming out their ears, but none of them have a section on children. Countries like Chile and Christchurch with the earthquakes found out the same thing. Their children are huge victims of emergencies. And as a cabinet minister in the New South Wales government spoke to me recently, after those fires, his son did not speak for two months. Yeah. And it was still in shock. So part of our job has been to ensure that children have access to psychosociological support and protection in emergencies. Often when you hear of a crisis in a country around the world, whether it be a tsunami or a cyclone, um, countries may say, well, we don't need foreign assistance. But actually, in actual fact, there's a team from UNICEF flying into those countries on standby with backpacks. That team is not providing essential medical equipment or food. That team is making sure that there's a safe place for displaced children straight away. Because the people who are arriving in those disasters often as fast as us are the human traffickers. And as no, shocking as it right? is, the best place to, dis- to traffic children is when there's displacement. Yes. When there's conflict and displacement. And so one of the 
most important things we can do, and agencies like us, is to make sure. So even in the bushfires here, you know, we're delighted to know that our colleagues at Save the Children help set up safe places down the coast. Our job is often not to always do it, but to make sure it's, it's being done. Because there are some shocking people out there. Mm. And, you know, I have to say, as being on a podcast, nothing makes me happier than to hear the likes of Ray Hadley pushing on behalf of children who've been abused or are subject to abuse on issues to do with paedophile in Australia, where child sex crimes have been not treated as a high-level crime. And finally, we have starting to see the government recognise child sex crimes no different than anti-money laundering or terrorism. These are serious, heinous crimes. Absolutely. And uh, in the past, I think that people have sort of said, well, this sort of stuff doesn't happen in Australia. Let me tell you one thing that really shocked me after the Austrac issues with Westpac. Westpac and the banks went to a lot of measures to make sure it was much harder for Australian citizens to access online paedophile offshore. Great work. Yeah. One of the perverse consequences is it created an up rise of the domestically produced industry. Shocking. Absolutely shocking. How bad is it, Tony? Like, well, it's bad enough that the Australian Federal Police do need more resources. And look, Peter Dutton has been very good on that space when he was in the role. And it will continue. But really, we always like to think the problem is somewhere else. Yeah. It's like incest doesn't happen in Australia. Uh, there must be those countries next door. Yeah. You know, these sort of things. So one of the things UNICEF does with governments is talk about the most fundamental thing for children, child protection and safeguarding. How do we keep our kids safe even at sporting events? Look at swimming lately. So we're, like, we're first to talk about the churches. But children haven't been safe in a lot of situations in Australia. And really organisations do need to take child safeguarding and protection a hell of a lot more seriously. That would be, to me, as bad to be involved in an organisation where inadvertently, and this is what we have seen in the banking community, mm we have allowed child safeguarding to be dropped down in the order that it didn't really matter. And what do we all want as parents? To make sure our children are protected and safe. So that's one of the things we do behind the scenes is work with government on and organisations on how we can lift child protection. Pretty hard to raise money for child protection when we're in the business of attracting donations. Everybody wants to help with girls' education or malnutrition, but sometimes child safeguarding is one of the most important things we can do. Human trafficking, how bad is that? It's bad enough that there is organized crime in it, mm. and it's bad enough internationally that the agencies who Australian government and others work with have had huge surveillance powers when it comes to watching anti-terrorism and money laundry. Yep. But when people from those agencies have said, Tony, we don't have the powers to to report on child trafficking because most of those powers are only allowed for anti-terrorism or money laundering. I was so pleased to hear the Australian government giving AFP greater powers on child trafficking and child sex offences. Child trafficking in many countries is horrific and if we think it's not happening here, there's a reason why we were keen to see the signs where I used to be the CEO of Sydney Airport. Yeah. I used to be worried at Sydney Airport each weekend how many young Australian children were going on a one-way trip out of Australia and not coming back. And so UNICEF has actually been involved in programs encouraging young girls when they leave Australia 
to make sure that if they think they're not coming back to a family reunion or a friend's thing, to put a piece of metal down their pants so at least the metal detectors will go off when they go through and they'll get to another room. And if you go to the toilets now at Sydney Airport and the women's and men's toilets, you'll see signs that if you think there's something wrong, let us know. But again, we, we tend to think these things don't happen on our watch. That must be those other countries. 15-year-old or 16-year-old who ends up finding herself as a bride overseas is, to me, just as much as child trafficking as some of the other areas of child trafficking. So if you're going to sort of, I guess, rank them, Tony, what does concern you most in regards to children's well-being at home in Australia? Well, certainly during COVID, their well-being was really, really profoundly impacted by not having access to education. And I don't think we took education seriously enough. We we were really keen on protecting our frontline health workers, you know, aged care homes, hospitals. That's fantastic. But so are classrooms and teachers. They are also getting kids back and as much around school is so important to them. Yeah. Australia, unfortunately, of the top sort of 40 rich nations in the world, we're in the bottom quartile when it comes to preparing kids for school. Only one in five is as prepared as they should be. Now, I know each state and federal government will keep looking at things, but we really do need to prepare and find ways to create the best environment possible for kids to be ready for school. The problem is for governments. They may um, give additional childcare subsidies and the private sector puts the rates up. It's a never-ending story. Yeah. You know, the cost of you know, preschool and childcare and is, is so expensive in this country. But we really need to give the kids the best start. But the other areas on the line, which I think we're starting to see here, is the mental health aspects. Okay. We used to think it was teenage. You only need to talk to John Brogdon and Lifeline and things, and the calls they're getting from under 13-year-olds scare the bejesus out of me. We used to think that in my previous life, the NRMA, the safest, the most unsafest thing that a child could do was to go out in a car at night. The road traffic's used to be the number one fatality for under 25-year-olds. Yep. Now it's suicide. And yet, when you go to some of those countries where there is conflict and poverty, they say, what suicide? There's some fascinating issues that, you know, money doesn't buy happiness. Maybe that comes on to another bigger issue in life, which is, you know, what is our purpose mm. as families? How much of what we've done, how much of our audiences and all of us have worked to be successful? We've worked to provide for our family, to provide the right roof, the right education, but how much is success and what are we doing for the next generation? I know my kids aren't really interested in how much money I made the shareholders. They're more interested in, Dad, what's your purpose? You know, my daughter's more interested that I'm trying to help kids than help shareholders. And I think there's another generation who's starting to ask families, what is our family doing to make a difference? What will my dad or mum be, be thought of? And I think there's a lot of us can spend a bit more time not thinking about what are the next assets or the next beach house or the next conversation with my financial planner or how I'm restructuring the testimony trusts. But if I had to teach my grandkids something, what did we do in a country or in a situation? Now that can be for some participating in the sector, whether that's mentoring, whether that's coming on a board, whether that's making the transition. Or for others, it can be as simple as saying, no, I want to make a difference in this country or this research, and I want to see the impact of that work. 
and I want my family to see it. I want to see what we can do. Part of this role is I often work with families who want to make a difference in a country. They want a, an anonymous, private philanthropy experience. Yes. I allow them to choose what their family may be passionate about, whereabouts in the world, what we could put together, what would not happen without their funding, and to see the impact so that part of their legacy is making a difference somewhere. Part of our legacy is avoiding death duties, which we don't have in Australia. So therefore, without death duties, we tend not to give as much to charities as countries like America. We seem to think that the betterment of our children, 100% of our assets, is tax effective to them, is going to create a better world for them. But is it? A better world for them is when they know the importance between purpose and profit, and that net assets aren't all tangible inside wealth management. I genuinely think there's something missing. And there's an old saying, you know, somewhere that life is short yeah. and, you know, happiness is about helping others. What I've found with some of the partners of UNICEF is they get an incredible satisfaction thinking if they hadn't done something. And I remembered a colleague of mine in Japan who works with UNICEF Japan was talking about legacies and he said, it's interesting he was talking to a grandparent who told their children that they are leaving their assets fairly to their grandchildren, but they're going to leave other assets to other grandchildren of the world and other parts of the world who need help because I want my grandchildren to know that I've provided enough for them. But granddad was also thinking about what else he could do somewhere else. And he said that's the Japanese ethos of teaching their children that, yes, we could have given you more, but we wanted to make a difference somewhere else. Somehow in Australia, we've lost a little bit of a sense of that, that we want to make sure that inheritance is only to our children and our children after them, and that somehow providing for them another transfer of assets. I just, I, I worry that it, it may not create the environment. I quite frankly would much rather see and I'm not talking UNICEF, I'm talking any organisation, but where you can make a difference, somewhere which wouldn't have happened. But it's a real privilege to create wealth. It's, it's something that those of us who have been in business can see. It's an incredible thing, and it says success. But I, I just wonder whether we're coming, and I wonder as organisations are going through ESG, mm. that individual chairs, CEOs are sitting down with their families and saying, what does our family make a difference? A classic story. When Tony Ryan Ryanair died, he left his family, obviously, enough assets in an investment fund for the family to do incredibly well, manage those investments, but he also left a foundation where the children had to work out where they wanted to support. Talking to one of the sons, he said, that foundation of what we do, and in fact the foundation works very heavily with UNICEF, they said, us thinking about where we could make a difference and why and what projects has created a stronger sense of family than any meeting that we have with our investment advisors about where our asset allocation should be next year. There's a, and I think there's a way to do a balance. Mm. But there's not really, you know, there's been some incredibly good paths set up in Australia, but I think that the next generation are struggling a wee bit about how this how this works. I think each family can make a difference on this planet, particularly now what's happening 
around climate change. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, probably the question I'd have to a lot of people is, um, you know, if I haven't thought about what purpose my organization's doing, yep. maybe I should spend a bit more time. And maybe what, is, what purpose can our family do? We've, we are in a fortunate situation. And so maybe when next time there's a place that we really love traveling as a family, where could we make a difference? And where could we go back to and see that we have made that difference? I know these things sound a bit glib, but the only way we will tackle, for example, COVID yeah. is if every family and every organization and every government does a little bit more. These things happen. You know, it's not one magic wand. It's a, it's a lot of small things make a huge difference. And boy, do I see what a small amount of money can make in, for example, an organization in Australia with $100,000 came to us and said, we'd really like to help girls in STEM. Where is a country which is male chauvinist, the boys are getting everything, girls aren't getting a fair run at school. Spoke to my colleagues, they said, Tony in Burundi, we'd love to do something here. We funded that program with Finch here and Facebook came behind us. The head of UNICEF spoke to me a few weeks ago and said, you know, the education minister and the prime minister heard about this program, Encouraging Girls in STEM. They love it so much that they're going to scale it up across the country. So these things can happen, but you've got to sometimes be the starter to show governments how to do something. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that's incredulous. That is something that a small step can make. And so one of the things UNICEF will often do is we talk about um, muddy boots and clean suits. We know that you can't go to a government in a clean suit and talk to them about children issues if you can't actually have some muddy boots and have done it on the ground. Yep. So in the case of when you, when you fund a program in a country and you show how it can have an impact, whether that be kids with disabilities, whether it be girls in STEM, if you can show it that it works and it has an impact and gets results, it's amazing how you can find those countries can say, well, maybe next year or the year after, could we co-fund it? And then you build things. I was in Myanmar before yeah, okay. the coup, and a district commander asked me, how do we manage our orphanages in each town? I thought, God, that's a good question. I don't think we've got orphanages in each town in Australia. I don't even know if we have orphanages. We have foster homes. I said, look, we don't really have orphanages. And he said, well, we don't want to have orphanages like some of the other Asian countries where they become you know, unreal, they become trafficking situations. And he was so interested in the whole foster care system. So what, he said, well, what would happen tonight if, if two parents died in a car crash? Mm -hmm. In Australia, wouldn't the kids go to an orphanage for the weekend? I said, no, we've got emergency foster care. We often complain about our foster care system and think how we hear about its faults. Yep. But compared with, you know, streets lined up with orphanages. And so the Myanmar government at the time wanted to see how our foster care, so one of the things we were funding them was showing how that whole area of um, social welfare, child protection, if parents died and something, how it can work yep. without there being orphanages. Um, now, I know there's been some terrible things in Myanmar lately, but underlying that, we are still on the ground trying to do those sort of programs. Some fairly courageous people working for UNICEF, isn't there? When you think about where they're positioning themselves and some of the hostile environments you're talking about. I think there's a certain type of person around the world who wants to, there may be the person in the family who is 
They may have got the degree and their parents think, gosh, well, he hasn't done much with it or she hasn't done much with it. Believe me, if they're working for the Red Cross or UNICEF or a humanitarian organization, they are rich in another way. But we can't survive without those sort of people working for us. You know, they'll come back to Australia for a few years and say, you know, when's the next posting to Yemen, please? Um, and I, it's not because it's an extreme situation in their heads. It's an, what it is. It's a desperate situation where children need help. And smart people on the ground can make such a difference. But in our case, my role in UNICEF Australia is to find partners and families and encourage the governments to um, just support these things. You know, I don't like to think about the word donate. I like to think about the word partnering, making a difference. You know, these are partnership journeys, yeah. but it's it's meaningful. And if people can't partner with resources, what they can partner with is their experience. I found uh, in our sector, I've had the privilege to sort of chair the regulatory body. Mm -hmm. This sector has an incredible talent, but they're lowly paid and they don't have access to the talent development and personal development of the private sector. Good old-fashioned training and development. So mentoring and coaching can be huge. And I feel that there wouldn't be a young finance person, a young marketing person who wouldn't benefit from some mentoring or coaching from some education and training. So one of the best ways you can support the sector, and I, I don't think it's about giving back because you've got it, it's about tangibly making a difference with a better purpose, is finding that if you want to be on a board, great, but if you don't want to be on a board, where can you, what's a cause that you can help with? And where could you make a difference? And if you're not sure, I'm happy to talk to any of your listeners, have a cup of coffee, have a, um, there's 58,000 charities in Australia. Every one of them, believes they're making a difference. I know some people say there's too many, but there's millions of companies, and and more and more charities are collaborating and, and merge. But we can't afford not to have new charities starting because that could be the game changer for a cure to cancer. You know, it's fantastic when organizations who are charities exist for medical research or for education research or trying to uh, Mind Medicines Australia, which has got one of probably the top boards from the private sector, has come together as a charity to investigate as to whether the use of psychedelics could be a game changer in antidepressants and PSTE. Is that right? Yeah. Now, we thought medicinal marijuana five years ago would never happen. It's still illegal, except that when doctors believe it is there for pain. And those of us, and I remember talking to Mike Beard about this at the time, there is a role for it. From the evidence I've seen, there will be a role for psychedelics in the next decade. It's already happening now. It's already been opened up this year in Colorado and California. In the right way, in the right situation, because right now, antidepressants aren't working. And if one in five of us has depression, it's nice to think it's the family or the business next door, but... We've got to we've got to find new ways and explore ways. Now, I love the fact that a charity has come to do that, not for profit, but to see whether it can provide the evidence. I have to say it was probably the most highly unusual appointment of a charity in Australia. I think it was a conditional approval that directors sign a stat deck that they will not use any of that for recreational purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but and, and, and given that the board of many of the board have come as ASX country, Companies, I don't know whether they've ever had that condition placed on them in the past. But we want a game changer in depression. We want a game changer 
on certain things in Australia around mental health because we can't afford to improve each year the economy and to be wondering whether GDP is growing faster or not as fast as suicide rates. It's, it's just a, we've just got to we've got to find something which is going to change. But are we hiding that? Are we actually discussing suicide enough? Look, I'm not an expert on suicide, and there is a school of thought which says if you talk about it, um, it doesn't help. And then I've noticed there's recently in the media if you talk about it, it does help. But I do know that the numbers aren't as transparent as they should. But it worries me that there are now more families talking about a suicide of a family or friend than they know than of a motor vehicle accident. So just as we've managed to improve the safety of lives and cars, we've got to find ways and game changers on this. And any charity who comes forward who thinks they can make a difference, I can say that it's a shit situation. My sister's husband committed suicide and left three young girls. The whole family doesn't recover. Yeah. It's tough, and you all wonder at the time, what could we have done different? Could we have helped in a different way? I don't know, but our brains do things that I can't believe any parent wants to leave their children behind, but something at that time tells them that the world is better off without them. What we can do in that space, we know in the case of cars that creating a safer car and driving um, and roads made a difference. What are our parallels around suicide? I don't know what the answers are, but if there's somebody out there who believes that they can work on evidence or research or do things which could make a difference, gee, I want to see them become the next charity straight away because this is not about profiting from that mental health. It's about making a difference. And the game changes will come from government investment in this. And I think absolutely convinced that somewhere in the not-for-profit there will be an organization who starts to see results in a certain space. Is there going to be a renaissance in this whole area of not-for-profit? Well, I feel that the word not-for-profit, it's, it's God knows where it came up. It must yeah. have been the bloody accountants again, and I apologise to the accountants there. I've, no, we like them. We like them a lot, Tony. I've always <laughs> joked that the accountants have taken an, an incredible hold on our planet. You know, we're obsessed with the budget rather than what impact we've had since the last budget. We're obsessed with statutory and financial accounts, and that's great. It's important to be financial literate. But then we talk about, oh, that other lot, or not-for-profit. We've always been purpose-driven. There isn't a not-for-profit who isn't a not-for-profit. I can't think of any not-for-profit who deliberately makes a loss. Because David Gonski, if you're listening, David, once you once said to me, not sure why you'd want to be in a charity, Tony. Uh, You know, most... People make an intelligent decision in their lives to choose a company which has access to capital and access to debt. Charities don't have access to capital and access to debt. And any smart director should you know, make sure that the company they're joining has access to both of those. So if there were difficult times, they can call on debt or additional capital. Look at our business model and charities. We have no access to debt or capital. We raise funds each year and we spend as much as possible on our charitable purpose, whether it be, could be cancer prevention or helping children. And then we keep just enough to be liquid, and then we do it again the next year. Now, it may be different if we're building a medical research building, but I believe that a charity does exist for its charitable purpose. And Gary Johns is the ACNC commissioner. 
Gary was probably the first commissioner who said, well, why are we just reporting on the financials? Why do charities each year, the only thing they have to do is to say how much their surplus or profit was. Why don't we talk about how they impacted on their their purpose? It was their purpose which gave them a charitable status in the first place. Mm. And I'm thinking that's what's coming to organisations. Yes, it's so important that, that the enterprise value keeps coming up on this return on shareholders' funds. Yep. But there's something else about what purpose we are doing. And if we didn't exist, would society be worse off or better off? Would our customers be worse off or better off? There's something coming in the next decade which the next generation of business leaders are going to find and profit from Yep, I agree. strong ESG. Yep. But it's going to take a bit of a sea change from the short-term financial focus. But you're seeing the dialogue already happen, aren't you? The dialogue's happening right now. The dialogue is happening right now. And look, anyone who's not thinking ESG, we used to call it when I was at the NRMA about shared value. Shared, and this is before Michael Peters. You know, shared value between customers, employees, the community, and owners. That it's all coming back. It was once the balance scorecard, but I think there's something more. The young are going to move. They're going to be much more transient. You know, the days of my dad being in one company all his life, gone. Yeah. Kids, the, the smart ones are going to want to know that their organisation, whether it's software, that it's software for good, whether they're making a difference somewhere. And I think a lot of organisations can do that through foundations, but they can also do it through. I'll give you a, a great example in Australia: Cotton On. Yeah, I really didn't know Cotton On much. This time last year, I guess my knowledge of Cotton On was seeing Cotton On on my credit card from my youngest daughter. <laughs> and I mean that to the nicest possible way to the team. Wow, what an organization. They approached UNICEF and said, look, we have a foundation where we have a range of products on the shelf. Those products on the shelf do not go back to shareholders. Those, profits on the, those products on the shelf go straight to our foundation and we do good with. We would like to be your partner and help vaccinate the world. So during COVID, certain items, and the kids know this, that's their range. But when I approached one of our leading supermarkets and spoke to the CEO two years ago, I said, could we have one product on your shelf? One product, a nutrition bar, which could literally save the life of a child that day. Could that, we have that picture of that product, a virtual product that you could scan. So when you're buying a ready meal, you could see a meal for a child. CEO thought it was a good idea, but the time it went to the marketing department, the risk department, the operations department, 18 months later, I got told it, it just wasn't happening. So we haven't got a supermarket or a retailer who can find one product for good. So when Cotton On came and talked like that last year, I went, wow, they get it. It's not much to put a handful of products. What they believe in their mission is to have a positive impact in the world. And when I went down and saw their head office down in Geelong, I have never seen a more engaged workforce in Australia. I was just blown away that the level of engagement in the organization, because they like to think when they're coming to work in a cotton-on shop, yes, their owners are getting profits, but they're making good in the world. And I thought, wow, what an amazing success story. Cotton-on, I've managed to, we've worked with them, we've had they're working with their stores throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that we actually had a global brand, nor did UNICEF. UNICEF actually thought Cotton On was an American company. <laughs> That's the next wave of thinking on boards. We can do this and complement shareholder gains, not compete with it. You mentioned debt and you mentioned capital. 
for the charities in Australia. Are they going to survive through Christmas this year? It's been pretty lean times, hasn't it? It's been incredibly hard for a lot of charities. To put it in context, nearly 40% do not have staff. They're volunteers. Those 40%, most of their funding has come from events, sausage sizzles, school barbecues. Every one of us has, you know, put a hand in our pocket and helped or participated. They have had two years from hell. Really, really hard. And those small community charities um, are doing it incredibly tough. What this does mean, though, is that somebody misses out because every charity is ultimately doing some good purpose, whether it be helping vulnerable people, whether it be homelessness. So something misses out. The funding doesn't come in. Something follows out down the track. And the charities exist because governments can't do everything. You know, they are all making a difference. And i that's where I, sort of, Gary and I sort of feel that charities should be talking about the difference they're making their impact, not just, you know, the money. And I think that impact is so much harder during COVID for some. But Tony, let me ask you, you know, some, some of the questions you get asked where I, I give you a dollar. How much of that goes into administration? How much actually that lands into that? the child support, for example, through UNICEF versus sure, some, the, some of the other UNICEF charities, right? Look, I can talk about most charities, you have to expect that the administration of a charity is going to range between 9 12%. And the administration of a company is the same. So when you look at the cost of company secretary, the general administration, the finance department, the compliance department, the IT, and guess what? We all have to have PCI compliance. We've got Compliance coming out of our ears in our sector. Yep. But we've all got to have it just to exist. Have the rent. Um, in our case, we're 9% in Australia. But then the next part of a charity is the marketing and supporter costs. To, if you've got, in our case, hundreds of thousands of supporters, you've got to send them a newsletter. It's not administration. You have to have communications with every customer has to receive you know, we have to have a customer a CRM system. Yep. Charities which don't are in real trouble. We work with Salesforce. I think we're in their good books that we must be in the first charity who was on time and on budget last year in Australia. And that cost us round about one and a half million. But to put in context, at the NRMA, we put an enterprise system and it was close to 100 million. But it's damn hard for charities who try to do everything on a bare bone. In our case, we are at 74% of the dollar is for the purpose. We're at, I said, 9%, and the balance, which I'm probably not good at my maths, is, is what we call supporter and marketing costs because we need to do two things. We need to retain our current customers, and that is no difference from any of your people listening to this. Yes. But we also need to invest in ways to attract new customers because the business model is always going to be no different than credit cards. It's attracting new and making sure that there's We've got a plan in place for those who are tracked with us each year. And uh, so most charities would call that sales and marketing or fundraising costs. So the most important thing in Australia, we say, is that a charity must at minimum be spending at least 50 cents plus in the dollar on its purpose. Yep. But when I hear some people talking about that we spend 100 cents in the dollar, bullshitting somebody because, the, or, or by the way, we've all done it, we just allocate our costs differently. 
I think we've got to be pragmatic. I, I'm very comfortable, and I was working for one of Australia's on the board of um, one of the strongest children's children's charities. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was around 60 cents in the dollar to the purpose. No one begrudged anything. Yeah. Our surf life saving, I think at one stage, was about 50 cents in the dollar. These things can be hard for charities because to retain and keep customers, you know, it's different when you've got capital from somewhere else. Yeah, you've exactly. got debt, but you don't have those two things to fund things. So, you know, what we ask is that it, and I think people should be looking that a charity should be mid 60s to mid 70s. Okay. So, what are the new ways? What are the creative ways you're seeing out there that charities are being really smart to attract new customers? There's a world called digital mm-hmm. that right now there's probably kids playing e-games, or maybe tonight they will be, and right in the middle of there's product placement. We we had an e-games thing recently where when we woke up in the morning we were, I think, $200,000 better off than the night before because kids during the charity were giving things. While they were going through other parts of the world, they were also supporting UNICEF. Just as the marketing world have found ways to product place in the e-world, and I'm told that some of these e-sporting events will sell out quicker than an NRL game yep. final. Yep. There is a whole world out there. So there is, there's things happening in digital that we haven't even thought of. There's new crypto digital currencies coming over the hill, NFCs and things like this, but there's no doubt that the day of the barbecue, the face-to-face door knocking, that's great for certain charities, and I think Salvos do a great job of that once a year and things like that. But it's the digital world, which doesn't know borders or boundaries. But then there's some simple things where, you know, H&M have worked with us of rounding up to the nearest dollar. I've staggered me why telcos and utility company boards have never said, well, why can't, would you like to choose one of our three or four charities and round up to the nearest dollar? Would I care that if I was with, well, I'm with Vodafone or Telstra, but none of the telcos or utilities have realized that their customer base can make a huge difference. Just like Qantas has been a big supporter of UNICEF with the change for good. But now that change is coming to an end, we're at a real crossroads as to how do we move in the digital world where coins are unsafe in the COVID world. And this is 30 years of, uh, of what's been an incredible strategic relationship with Qantas where as Qantas travellers know, when they're travelling around the world, yep. trying to make a, diff- a better world around the world. What about capability joining the sector? And you're across it, and you, I think you mentioned earlier that there's, some, there's a lot of goodwill and people coming through would benefit from mentoring, you said. But what about capability coming in to play a more active role? Maybe they've got, a, like, as you said earlier, are you picking up people who've made some dough, or they've done well in life and saying, you know what, I'm going to make a change? Yes, but I'm very cautious of just thinking that you parachute out of a financial services or a business or an IT business where there's been money and think that you'll make a difference in the sector. I, I was probably the CEO for hell for the first three years because firstly, the sector doesn't really welcome. They, I think my own team in the early days would, would wanted a, a, somebody with a strong humanitarian child rights background. And, you know, I think I was third prize that they ended up with somebody with a business background. Having said that, I feel that I've always had a very strong sense of social justice and purpose. But the sector is very suspicious of, well, we need people from the private sector to come in and teach us things. They're very passionate about. So I think it's important about balance. I think that 
There's no point coming to our sector if you are not passionate about a purpose. Don't think that you're going to give back and just, you know, reduce your salary, which in my case was, I think, less than 25% of my previous role, because you're doing good to society. It means nothing unless you're genuinely interested in the role. People can see through that straight away. But I do think that in the organization is looking for, there's two types of people out there at the moment. There are people who are just not feeling passionate about getting up after COVID. I'm just not passionate about coming into work because I don't quite know where the where the board and the CEO is taking us. What is where are we standing out? Yep. If I hear another company think about our next quarter's results, I want to know more than our results. That it, there's got to be something good as to what we are doing, and I think it's a challenge that is not insurmountable. But I think you know, insurance companies and banks need to re have some conversations about what does better banking or what does better insurance mean and what and be able to practice it and not just spruik it through advertising departments on a TV campaign. But I I think that what we're starting to see is a is a group of people who are saying, yes, I'm prepared to take money sacrifice if I'm more passionate. Mm-hmm. But I think there's another group who are also at a stage in their career, as you say, who have done the most important thing, which is provide for the immediate roof over the head, the education of their own children and family, yep. who are in a position to say, I would like to try my hand at something. Yep. Still got plenty of energy. Well, I honestly thought if, you know, there's a there's a six in front of my age and I should have been put out the pasture a while ago and, and I'm energized through purpose. COVID has given me an incredible sense of energy and making a difference. And... I honestly feel that if you've got people out there with a five and a six in front, you'd be amazed that one of the greatest ways you can energize yourself is having passion and purpose about something. Now, I know that can be lowering one's golf handicap <laughs> or working out whether the Wallabies will win six in a row, which didn't be cool. happen. Be cool. But what is it that you are passionate about? And maybe there's a little exercise. Think about when you're back at university one thing I encourage people who, when they come to me for a bit of advice, is you know, go back and write your book. Start, what what were you interested in as a teenager? What were the interested things that you read, took an interest in, visited places you went to? Go right through. And you might be surprised that you've just put on the back burner something you read, a book or something. Oh my God, I've never really thought that I could make a difference with cancer research or with an indigenous situation here in Australia. And look, you know, I'm the first to say when I was asked by our board, what are we doing with Indigenous children? The first piece of advice, one of my great Indigenous senior friends said, Christ, Tony, don't be a white Toyota. Don't come along and think that you're UNICEF Australia and you're fancy white Toyota, you're going to come out here and teach us a problem and somehow help it. Would you spend the next few years just listening to what our problems are? But I do think that what I have learned is that every organisation working with Indigenous Australians, whether that be on climate, whether that be on children, whether that be on health. There's a huge amount of really great organisations, many of them Indigenous-led, but they all need help scaling up. All of their CEOs need a little bit of help, all of their finance directors. So one of the greatest things you can do is find an organisation. Don't try and solve the problem yourself, but help people who are there solving the problem make a difference to them. I think there's a great opportunity for so many people to partner and find that passion. I know there's an awful lot of you know people in their 80s still incredibly passionate about what the stock market did last week. 
But there are other ways to be passionate in your 80s and 90s. And I think it's brought a piece of legacy. And I think what's missing from our grandfathers and great-grandfathers, when they saw how hard this country was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that passion was really (laughs) making a difference in Australia for the next generation. But now we're at a stage where we can do that globally. We can find a part of the world which meant something to us or meant something to our family or a cause. And I said there, there are various ways to get involved, but I guarantee you one thing. If you do, you dip your feet in the water, you'll become passionate about it. Not for profit sector, red tape bound? Not too much. I, I think that the sector, as I said, has been very hamstrung on making sure that one's returns are in on time and and financials, and I'd rather see less focus on that and be talking about the charities who have had the greatest impact in Australia over the last 10 years. Who are they then? I think medical research. I think Australia hasn't done as much as it could on medical research, but where it has done, around cancer, around heart, around even vaccine research. And even though one or two of our products may fail on some of the research around COVID, you know, in the early days of the vaccines, yep. then there'll be another lot working somewhere else right now to ensure that Australia's research can make a difference to the next pandemic. So I think those who have, charities who've gone into medical research have been game changers. And there's a lot of research in Australia, which as people well know, the commercialization of that research often takes place overseas. Yes. Because that's where the capital is. Yep. But the skunk works, or that's probably being unfair on skunks, but the, you know, those smarts yep. in the early days yep. has often been in the sector. I also think that in areas you know, of education and homelessness, I know we will always see what's wrong in Australia. But Jesus, when you travel around the world, we've done an awful lot of things right. As a country, you know, we've done an awful lot right. And I think that that's where a lot of charities have made a difference. And I think more recently, some of the charities who are doing some great things are around digital access and digital divide. Because one of the greatest dividers in Australia right now is access in the you know, to the digital world. And and charities who created a lot of online products around education, around support for young kids and things, there's a lot of that sort of stuff really fascinates me. I think there's been some great breakthroughs there. Did COVID-19 bring home to you the, um, or bring home to Australia, do you think, the social divide in this country? Here we are, we all think we're fairly equal, but where was COVID predominant? Now, are they all English-speaking? Were they not English-speaking? Were they educated, not educated? Did it bring home to things to roost that we should contemplate? I think it brought home to roost that Australia has... We're a multicosm. I mean, outside of our Indigenous colleagues, we're all immigrants. We've all come from different parts of the world, and we've all seen the world differently. And I think that trying to sometimes say that one size fits all in Australia, but how one talks to people who have come out of huge conflict in parts of Africa or have got huge religious um, overtones in their community or huge sort of stereotypes around gender, I think what it's made us realize is that there's a lot of multiculturalism and you have to approach these things in a multiculturalism. And and in fairness, for example, in New South Wales, um, after we saw some issues earlier on in the same in Victoria, I think bringing in experts, and I think one of the things which was very successful with COVID was not-for-profits who exist in that space, often made up of those communities working with government, yep. alarming fear. I mean, we know we have a situation, if you look at three countries, Australia, very high vaccination rates, yeah. but still a bit of scaremongering. 
PNG, huge amount of vaccines, but very low vaccine take-up, huge amount of scaremongering through social media about how harmful vaccines are, and then Fiji with a very high vaccine take-up. So often it's not the vaccine or the needle, it's the messaging around it. Mm. And sometimes, you know, how do you tell the people in PNG that they should have what we didn't want when we were saying, or AstraZeneca is not good enough for Australians, but let's give it to PNG. Very That's true. what they were hearing. It yeah. may not be the truth, but the perception is sometimes, well, hang on, if this stuff's good, why isn't all the Australians embracing it? Yeah, true. Let's face it, if we all lived in London, we wouldn't know anything else. <laughs> so we, you know, we're in a country in the world where we sit down for dinner and say, now, hang on, what about Moderna? Or actually, I think I'll have Novavax. And which booster are we getting? And yet I'm watching people and you know, young girls in PNG worried that if they ever have a vaccine, they will never get pregnant. That's worrying. But that stuff is out there. Oh, right. Just okay. like we saw in Samoa before the... Remember in Samoa before we saw measles outbreak? Over 100 children died of measles. A lot of anti-vaccine... A lot of false information about the measles vaccination. And then what happened was that you know, measles, is always, measles is not a light disease. But you, know, you can imagine when parts of the world where there's resistance to... Um, polio, which I have to say, pleasingly, I thought it was almost eradicated. It is it? almost eradicated, but in the but the great thing about polio, where it's not there, has been more about access in parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan, rather than I don't want it because I don't believe in it. Because I think anyone who has had a family with polio knows that these things are serious, and that's where this is a medicine which can help. I think that's what we're trying to say with COVID. This is a way of protecting yourself from protecting others. So you're plugged into the world in your, in your role. Exceptionally plugged in, aren't you? Well, I did think one of the benefits of UNICEF was traveling around the world and seeing what was happening in the world of UNICEF. But that does mean these days that it's a 3 a.m. call, hearing what's often happening in South Sudan or having a colleague, which I put my son on the phone to last night, which was our friends in Kabul telling us about what's been happening there. One of the great things about UNICEF is in the digital Zoom Teams world is we can talk very quickly about what's happening and get up to speed very quickly. Uh, UNICEF is very good at mobilizing supplies. There is always an outbreak, if you've just seen, which I was in Ethiopia three years ago, couldn't think of a more peaceful country. Yeah. Look what's happening now. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder whether if you lived up on the moon and you looked down at Earth, you'd think, gosh, just when you've it's a bit like going to the fairground. And what are those little frogs or alligators which you hit them on the head and it knocks down, but two more jump up again? I sometimes wonder if that's a bit like our planet when it comes to conflict. No sooner that we think we've quietened down something. And I dare say the animals must look at humans and say, crushed, they're, they're pretty tough on each other, these humans. <laughs> so we're never going to see uh, UNICEF cease to exist then, based on what you see. The perfect... Vision for UNICEF is a world where UNICEF doesn't exist. Mm. That's perfect. We'd all love that. And look, in fairness, there's huge gains. You know, we often forget the amount of countries who didn't have fresh water. The number, what's the number one cause of death for children in the world? Malnutrition? No, dysentery. Diarrhea. Due to bad water. Due bad water. water and bad hygiene. You know, we've got, you know, remember, huge populations, even close by, do not know what a toilet is outside a piece of grass. But poor hygiene and poor water, still the largest in many countries, cause of death. So, for example, one of the things we're working with Rotary is one of the ways around that is rotavirus vaccine in the Pacific to help children so that they're not going to die of dysentery or bad diarrhea. You know, we worry about our belly, what is it, barley belly when we go on holiday. Well, that's nothing for what. And children's 
stomachs and guts can't cope. So just fresh water has been one of the greatest game changers in the world. Hygiene, education, nutrition, there have been huge advances. We often think about what's wrong, but I was just looking at some of the stats just to see the improvement of, and even one of our nearest neighbour, I think by a few cents, is in East Timor. Mm-hmm. The number one thing when I was over there, they asked what UNICEF Australia could do is to provide fresh water. And I said, where? And they said, to our well. I said, where's your well? 5K is from the city. And I'm thinking it's 500 k's from the city. So there are still fresh water issues literally on our own backyard. And I dare say that there are parts of Australia which we, most of us, will never get to access to, which are doing it pretty tough when it comes to hygiene and fresh water too. So we know our own backyard is something which um, one of the best things we can give children is the very basics. And you know, one of the great... How about, how about is it, Tony? We don't talk about Well, one of the great benefits children. of... Have we not noticed one of the greatest benefits? And we've all got slack lately. This time last year... I would not be coming in here without you asking whether I'd wash my hands and you'd hand me the sanitizer. Correct. So things are changing. We've got a little bit loose, but you know what happened last year? The least amount of those you know, influenza deaths. You know, because one of the greatest ways we were getting influenza was by shaking hands with people. Yeah. You know, those little things. So you know, one, of the, one of the greatest things we do around the world with kids is wash. And the Wiggles have been fantastic as supporting us on... Um, Encouraging kids to wash their hands. So last year, kids were encouraging their parents to wash their hands during COVID. Come on, mum and dad, wash your bloody hands, not just us. Now, we should all be doing it because it's one of the greatest ways of stopping you know, diseases, even as simple as a cold and the flu, being transmitted. And I think we have to sometimes remember that hygiene is so important. Um, COVID was actually, I think, helped right around the world. Children encouraged their families to wash their hands. And I think that may not have helped as much as COVID as we would have liked, but it certainly reduced the transmittability and it certainly tra- reduced the transmittability of other diseases. This is a leadership podcast. So what's leadership to you then? You've, you've, you've seen different operators in different parts of the world now. You've seen business, you've seen not-for-profit, you've seen, as you say, the charity, the leaders in that space. Well, how do you, how do you sum it up? Well, we've all been on lots of leadership courses and we've all read probably every book at the airport on leadership. <laughs> I'm still drawn to Robert. I can't remember your name, but I remember you came and talked to us once at Sydney Airport and you said, I asked you the same question and you said to me, Tony, if it breathes, it's leadership and if it doesn't breathe, it's management. And that stayed with me for the last 20 years. And I, you don't manage a platoon going into conflict lines at night, but you certainly manage the plan and the logistics. And over the years, I've always felt that leadership is about people. Yes, it's about a vision. It's about sharing and communicating that work. But to communicate that vision and bring everyone on the journey, a a leader needs to feel and act the culture of an organization. It's To me, it, it is about can that leader demonstrate not just the culture of an organization which you have to lead by example but it's the nous and the nuances and feeling the organization i think it's very hard for leaders in a virtual world because when you sit down with your team and you're in a room you can feel as a leader hopefully there's you know, emotional intelligence and enough empathy to sort of feel the tone the tenor how people are these things can be masked a bit i think in the virtual world but leaders can create a sense of energy purpose and conviction, a belief, and whether that belief 
is an earnings, whether that belief is a goal. But I do think there's a lot about leadership and people. And I've always felt that the management of the business plan, of the earnings forecasts, of all the logistics and operations in a company. And I think that leaders can, leaders who find themselves managing um, need to focus very much on their leadership skills first. And maybe, I guess, is all, you know, life is short. Mm-hmm. It's damn short. You know, it's not like the planets, you know, it's damn short. Some of us don't know how short it's going to be. Yep. But really, I can't help thinking that if we can lead as leaders, we can lead the organization not so much in a better place financially than we found it, which is important, but the caliber of the people who are coming after us are going to be even stronger leaders. So maybe that where we've had weaknesses, we compensate that by encouraging and developing those with us, by being part coach, part mentor, part collaborator. I I can't help thinking that the leadership who's in tune not just with their direct reports, but with their customers, their stakeholders, their younger staff. I've always been a bit of a curious Kiwi. I'm fascinated as to why people are joining, why people are leaving the organization, why customers. Sometimes it pays unusual dividends. I used to ring when I was in my 30s at British Airways running a credit card business. I used to ring customers who'd cancelled with us. Ring one customer and he explained at long detail why he'd cut up his card. <laughs> Had a long conversation. I totally understand it. He wasn't going to recut it up. But he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to accept an issue. But it was a pretty really good, interesting conversation. You learn things from this. Yeah. Then, a year later, a new managing director turned up at British Airways. Robert Ailing. In his very first meeting with the top 100 staff. At the end of it, his EA came and asked if Tony Stewart was in the room. Oh Christ! What have I done now? Anyway, ended up going up the front, meeting the new CEO. Oh, Tony Stewart, I've got to meet you. My father-in-law said, don't come for dinner this weekend unless I've met you. And I said, well, how do you mean, Mr. Ailing? He said, well, I think you spoke to my father-in-law a year ago about a credit card he had cut up. And my father-in-law wanted to thank, say, when you got the job as the new CEO, find that young bloke and thank him. Well, look, within, I don't know, six months to a year, I actually ended up with a very large promotion, a different role, and I'm sure it was all down to my talent, but I've learned one thing in life. You cannot become a CEO or a business leader. You may think you can. I used to think one of my goals was to be a CEO in my 20s. It's an impossible goal. I was told by a coach, unless you're an entrepreneur or you've got the equity, you can only be appointed as a CEO by others. And I think with that, so I've learned one thing about the corporate world and the business world. You're only as good as other people who are in a position to appoint you, perceive you and see you. And I think that tomorrow's people who are going to be appointing leaders in Australia are going to be watching people not just on their results, not just on their leadership, but they're going to be looking at their footprint as a leader. They're going to be saying, has that person got the right blend of emotional intelligence, empathy, financial analysis, commercial acumen, ESG? They're going to see that they're going to they want to see the package. Yeah. So I think that leaders who are not thinking about this on the journey are going to be harder to find those right appointments in the future. Where do you spend your time as a leader? I spend a lot of time, I try to balance, my EA would say not enough on emails, I try to balance a lot of my time on people. I have a half day a week where I will meet people who I'm, I always have for years, half a day, if I can't do it once a week, I'll do it once a fortnight, where people who I think may be of interest to the organization, where I don't have any but people who want to meet, 
people who may have left the organization, people who have recently joined the organization. I will have coffee meetings. It starts with coffee and it becomes decaf. And just listening meetings. And one of the other meetings I have by myself and my colleagues think that I'm a little bit deranged. <laughs> but I have a meet. The most important meeting a leader can have each week is a meeting with oneself. I have a meeting with Tony. I call it Tony time. I've tried going to restaurants and having two cups of coffee and talking to myself. That can annoy patrons. I've tried sitting on both sides of the table. But while I'm being a bit facetious, sometimes as leaders, we have time for all of our direct reports, our chairmen, our boards, one of our stakeholders. But we don't have the quality time where we ask ourselves, how are we traveling? What did I miss last week? Where do I need to focus my time? You can't do that sitting at home at night with the family in the background on a Sunday night. So I have a cup of coffee with Tony. And I ask Tony some questions, at least once a fortnight. That is my little bit of self-indulgence. And if you think that I'm lonely or I'm Nigel, no friends in a cafe, I'm not. (laughs) I am. And by the way, it doesn't matter whether you're at work or retired. Have a cup of coffee with yourself and just ask how you're traveling. And, you know, who have I forgotten about? Who haven't I thanked in recent what didn't I appreciate around me in the last, whoever I caught up with? And it's amazing what comes into your head. And you, now I know you can probably do it walking or being in the car, but I find just finding that little bit of time. And I'll go away with my diary with two or three things which I wouldn't have thought of an hour ago. And it might be, gosh, I, I never, I forgot to check in with Jenny about how that went. So coffee with others, but a coffee with yourself. Occasionally doesn't do any bad. You like people? Well, people are fascinating. I once made up a saying that the sheep in New Zealand are fascinated by people follow each other. We're a funny race. You know, if that black shirt you've got, you'll have one next time. Apple? Oh, Jesus, I better have an Apple phone. We're a fascinating species. Oh, ESG? Jesus, we're not talking about it at our board? Risk matrices? We'll be following that in six months' time. That's so true. You know, hey, um, oh, there's a recession coming. Well, how many staff are you making redundant? What about the next organization? We talk about leadership, but I think the subject we don't talk enough much about is followership. I guess it's following. It's not leadership. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. And, and by the way, there's a skill to this because I think that as leaders, we often forget how are our followers seeing us. Followership is something which is one of the most under-discussed subjects. Yeah, I agree. And really, leaders are only as good as the followers believe that they're great leaders. Um, so followership is something we should spend a bit of time with. But I am always fascinated how organizations will move a reconciliation action plan. I'm sure we've got one of those. Next week, next board, have we got one of those? By the way, I'd like to see a child action plan and a youth action plan. So if we're going to have reps, can we have caps and yeps as well? Because as organizations, we've got to be careful that we're not just following a fad, that we're doing things for the right reason, that we're doing it because it's intrinsic to who we are, not because a director told me on Saturday night that we should be doing it. And I think that what makes great leadership is the organizations who have said, we're going to put, we're going to do something and show some business leadership in an area, not because others are doing it and we feel that fear of missing out or fear of not being seen by the equity analysts of not doing the same thing. So maybe, maybe leadership is not just the personal attributes of oneself but what is what can the organization leaders what can a board do when it talks about a board strategy day when is it about a board leadership when will this organization show some leadership in this space which makes a difference to australia
Well, they're all facing a pretty tough one at the moment, Tony, because there's a lot of there's going to be what 10, 12, maybe 15 percent of Australians unvaccinated, and some of them are going to come back to work. What does the leaders do then? Because they're all they're all going to stand. They're, they're, well, looking, they're looking at each I, other. I, at I'm the moment, I'm, aren't I'm they? pretty confident that we'll vaccinate 95 percent of Australia. Oh, yeah? Absolutely. 95? Yep, 95. 90 plus, definitely. I think there's this, there is a group out there quite and, – and I understand, and perceptions mean everything. There is a group out there right now who maybe the media see as anti-vaxxers. I think that they are going to be much more supportive of the Novavax. Novavax, which is just coming through, is the vaccine, which is a traditional protein-based vaccine where – maybe young mums who are concerned about pregnancies. I know naturopaths have spoken to us. People who have been very concerned about the first round, which I don't think is warranted, but, you know, perception is reality. Yep. I've learned that in life. If you and I go to a – the perception of us is often very different from the reality. So if the perception is that these drugs, these vaccines aren't quite right for me, the perception is that Novavax or Moderna is safer, God bless, go for it. So I, I'm feeling comfortable that we'll get close to 95%. I think the workforce, there is a duty of care because I think we're all in a dilemma, which is we do want to have the safest possible workplace. Now, I was pleased to report to my board today that 100% of our workforce has voluntarily told us and shown us their vaccination certificates. I'll have to say some of my board were shocked because they are struggling with that in their own organizations. Yeah, absolutely. We have young mums, we have all sorts of people in the organisation, but they genuinely know through UNICEF's work in vaccines, and there's been, this is before we have put any pressure on anything. All we have asked is that we would like to know who's vaccinated and who's not. And the two or three who said that they weren't because they have asked to wait for Moderna, which has just come out. So we, we're probably a little bit different than most organisations, but I... I can't help thinking that an employer's first duty of care, and we are employers, is to keep people safe. And if that means that vaccines will keep a safer workplace, then the workplace should be vaccines. If that means that coming to work needs to be in the workplace, then that's also a conversation. But um, I know one thing. Any of us as CEOs or directors who allow our staff to travel overseas do not be in a situation that there was a fatality, whether it be COVID or a car accident, and we haven't done our utmost in safety. I've had a good colleague of mine, a CEO, who's, you know, before COVID, a, an employee was mugged and unfortunately died. And then they went all over that board looking at where did safety sit versus cost. If we were to see something happen with COVID, where somebody claimed that part of the reason they got COVID was in the workplace, we'll have the safety piece. I'm gonna, I would rather go to safety first and employment law second. Yeah. Um, but you know, I can't help thinking that these vaccines are safe. There yeah. are choices here. Our first duty is to make sure that as employers that we can provide the safest place for our people to be at work and when they travel from work. Tony, you mentioned legacy. How does that transpire into your sector? Legacy is a fascinating term because often our legacy is seen as really often what we leave of our estate and world behind. And we're fortunately we're not in a country where death duties are a major conversation. So, you know, we all have a culture where we don't want to give it to the government. So in a lot of countries their legacy is often 
certain parts to charity to avoid giving it to government. But the flip side of that is we've almost created legacy where we, where our children or grandchildren almost create an entitlement culture. Mum and dad must give us all of their assets, all of it to us. What are they thinking about giving 5%, 10%, 20% to a charity? And hell, if they do, maybe we should contest it. And I've had colleagues in the sector say we get given this wonderful gift by somebody, and the next minute they're saying, oh, the estate's going to challenge it. Mum and dad must have been off the head. They should, we'd, we're entitled to all of it. Is that really what the future of Australia is? So maybe the legacy, the way that people have got to start thinking is having those conversations, creating, doing something when one is alive and saying, I want it to continue. I want you to champion it. I want you to be involved in it. I want you to participate. I want you to help make choices. I mentioned the Ryan family. Let them feel that they can choose the projects, but not this concept of, please, I know, you, I know you've worked hard, mum and dad, but it's now it's, you know, there's two of us and it's all mine. Look, I read an article not so long ago in Sydney Morning Herald which said if you live in certain parts of Sydney, forget working. Go and play for the rest of your lives. Between your grandparents and your own parents' wealth, you're probably one of 1.8 children. You don't actually need to work later on in life. Their assets and their super will cover you going. So just get by, do whatever you like for the next 10 years. So I honestly feel that families can more than provide for the next generation, but they could share an adventure, a passion, a purpose, and make a difference while they're alive. Where that, where I've seen that happen, it is so important for the family. And if there's anyone who's even thinking about this, and I'm not asking that it be UNICEF, please pick up the phone, have a chat to me. But I honestly think there are ways that, but you're not getting law firms encouraging that at the moment. If anything, you'll be saying, oh, well, be careful, because what if your kids challenge it? I have to say, in the UK, they've been passing legislation to say if there's less than 20% in the will to a charity, it can't be contested. And it's maybe different if there's two children and suddenly mum and dad, or whoever, the last one has left 100% or 90%. But I think we've got to get the balance. And I think in Australia, I know we, we hate giving money to the government, but but maybe there's a way of us all just looking at our own footprint and making sure that our footprints leave some good. And I honestly think the best thing we can give our children is we can give them some experiences where mum and dad were passionate about making a difference, asking them to share that. All right. Bit of a light heart moment. Christmas is coming. What can Australians do for UNICEF or what can Australians do for the charity sector? Well, the greatest thing that I think that we could all do this Christmas is look at an inspired gift. In the case of UNICEF, our inspired gifts are where we can vaccinate a family or vaccinate a village. But really to vaccinate, it's it's $5 to vaccinate two doses of vaccines for somebody in the world. Now you can you can buy a $20 gift or you could buy $20 of vaccine. But you could also go to organisations who are selling products where those proceeds are going to charity. Whether that's Christmas cards or the cottons on of this world, I think that people respect something. The other thing I think you could do is certainly look at buying, you know, if you do want to travel, take children somewhere a bit different. I said to my daughter one Christmas, your Christmas present is coming volunteering in the Philippines with me next year. And she said to me last week, because she's at a residential college at a university, and I said, well, Darling, in the last few years, I've shown you purpose and I've shown you privilege. I'd like you to choose where on the path you want to land in your life. And I have a feeling it won't just be privilege. (laughs) Because she saw 
where she saw in the Philippines, she saw something else that she wouldn't have seen. So maybe what parents can do if they're thinking about travel is look at some of those um, volunteering type travel opportunities where you go somewhere and you do something. There isn't a father or a mother or a grandparent who couldn't do something with a child and it will be a game changer. But if you're looking for tangible gifts, look for gifts which can make a difference. Most charities will often have a product, a virtual or a tangible product, which could make a difference to their. So maybe there's a blend in your Christmas gifts between Christmas gifts which create good and Christmas goods which um, you know are the traditional type of Christmas good which involve a lot of packaging and things. But uh, I think you can, if you thought about it, there's a lot of things you can do. And, um, and I'm saying this on behalf of the sector. You know, even buying um, something which can make a difference on medical research or uh, or feed a family in you know in Australia who, who are missing out. There's a, there's an awful lot which the Mission Australia's you know, Reverend Bill Cruz and I'm only talking of one of hundreds and thousands of charities, but sometimes a little bit of kindness at Christmas, blended with a, some of the presents and the fashion and everything else, can go a long way. And Tony, if you were to look back at that young man who got that LP, played that music that day. What advice would you give him now? I wouldn't change anything. But what I hadn't told you is that when I had joined an international company, and look, joining it, I was with Shell Oil and then British Airways, international companies give tremendous international experience, great training, great. I had a choice between doing an MBA and I was getting a company-funded MBA in Switzerland. I just signed up to it and group of my mates from university said, well, that's too bad, Tony, because we're taking three Land Rovers through Africa. I never did the MBA in Switzerland. I went to Africa for nine months. Now, much to my stupidity, I went back to the company after that because they had said, well, we'll give you a sabbatical on half pay. When I came and resigned after that because I was moving on from Shell to British Airways, I said, well, thanks so much for sabbatical. I feel really bad that I'm not coming back. Would you like me to fund, refund the half pay for those nine months? I should never have said the question because the HR manager said yes. Now, in those days, I, when you pay back something you've just spent six months spending, it took a long time. But what I learned in my time in Africa is something that set me up to realize that we can all enjoy this world. But if maybe at some stage of my life I could be involved in something which could make a little difference. And uh, I still think when I'm with UNICEF traveling, parts of Africa I think about those days where we just sat in a village and we just talked about we were casual carefree typical Australian Kiwis in our 20s these days it's probably a lot harder so sometimes when you're kids or you're thinking about it's not all about the university degree I think an experience in life an enriching experience volunteering making a difference doing something can be as engaging and don't be put off I took six years to get a three-year degree at university and I was a CEO by 30. There's an awful lot of people out there worrying about their ATARs, how many you know, degree distinctions. That's not what the world's looking for over the next... It's looking for people who one day can see a sense of purpose, but are financially and commercially got great acumen, but they are going to be looking much more for the all-rounder than they are going to be looking for the batsman or bowler. On that, Tony, all I can say is, uh, firstly, Merry Christmas to you. And Merry Christmas to you and everybody. Let's make it a great one. We need it after COVID. Exactly. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs> <laughs>